I'm Paige, the host of Reverie True Crime. I tell stories of helpless victims, vicious killers, predators watching their prey before they strike, survivors, petty crimes, people we think we know who do the unthinkable, and the dangers that lurk not only in the dead of night, but in plain sight and the light of day. Every once in a while, I'll also tell stories of the frightening paranormal, elusive cryptids, haunted locations, and conspiracies that may be silly or thought-provoking. You can listen to Reverie True Crime wherever you're listening to this podcast. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Reverie Crime Pod. Facebook, Instagram, and even Tumblr at Reverie True Crime. Remember, stay safe, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and take care. As we steamroll towards trial and the end of the first season of Defense Diaries, this week we've been posting photographs of the known victims of Gacy on our Instagram and Meta accounts formerly known as Facebook, which help us and you put a face to the name of these young men whose lives were far too short. So follow us at Defense Diaries to check those out. Also, Darren and I just want to tell you briefly how excited we are about season two of Defense Diaries. As you all know, we are 31 episodes into this season, which by the way, Darren and I did not anticipate, not even, not even close. We were thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to you know, maybe 27, right? Yeah, 33 is insane. And and you know that I have a personal connection to the Gacy case. And I think that having a connection like that to a case like this allows me to have a different perspective. One in which I'm both an outsider and an insider. Now, I was a child when this case was happening and obviously was not involved other than being the son of one of the creeps lawyers. But The thing is, the case has become a part of the fabric of my being. I don't have any particular fascination with Gacy or serial killers beyond trying to understand what makes them tick. But this thing has been like a running commentary in my life for the better part of 40 years. And I was torn going into this pod on how much or how little of my story I should include within the narrative. Certainly, I was a part of the narrative, but only in a periphery sense, kind of like a footnote. However, I think my connection to the case through my father lent itself to the people that we've interviewed during the course of the pod, to having a different level of comfort when they were speaking to me, as opposed to the dozens and dozens of other interviews that they've done with myriad of filmmakers and authors and so on. So Darren and I were both stunned when Albrecht and Robinson disclosed the fact that the evidence had been planted, and I kept wondering, why in the hell did they tell us? My connection to the case is the best answer that I can come up with. And this is why in season two of Defense Diaries, we will be doing another deep dive into another case that I have a personal connection with. That case is the people of the state of Nebraska versus Dr. Anthony Garcia. You see, I was lead counsel for Anthony Garcia. Allison, my wife, was co-lead counsel until she wasn't. That's a story you'll have to wait for. And my father second chaired me. Yeah, believe it or not, he second chaired me. 
and it was the only case that we ever tried together. Now, if you're not familiar with Anthony Garcia, he was accused of killing four people over a five-year period, including young Thomas Hunter. It was a gut-wrenchingly brutal case to handle. And I have always felt personally and always will that defending a suspected child murderer is absolutely the most difficult job psychologically for any person to perform. Believe me, I will get into depth into that side of that case during the second season. But procedurally, that case was absolutely unbelievable. My father, having tried both cases, told me after the trial that the Garcia case blew the Gacy case out of the water as far as the difficulty of preparing and fighting it in court. The case, according to the state's narrative, spanned 13 years, so there was just a massive amount of information to sift through and digest. And I'll be doing all the heavy lifting for you all, though and will only be digging into the most crucial aspects of the investigation and the case. Now, there have been multiple pods that have done an episode or two on the Garcia case, but this is gonna be different because we are not going to be relying on books or Dateline episodes or other secondary sources because I have the entire discovery file that was tendered to me by the state. And if you're curious, I do not have to concern myself with disclosing attorney-client privilege information because there's nothing to disclose. My client always maintained his innocence, always. And the pod will not be me on my soapbox shitting on the state. No, we will lay out all of the facts, all of the evidence, the entire narrative of the state, all of the evidence that they used, their entire theory will be revealed because I feel that it's crucial for you all to know the entire story. However, for the first time ever, because everything that I have seen or heard about the case has only disclosed the state side of the case, you will hear the defense's side of the case. And then we will leave it to you. After all of the evidence that was uncovered, including evidence that was not allowed in a trial, which was a substantial amount, to come to your own conclusion as to Anthony Garcia's guilt or innocence. We are excited to bring the story to you, and we hope, in turn, that you are excited to hear it. But enough of that for now. We have some important work to do in order to get the creep strapped to the gurney where he would end up breathing his last putrid breath. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 31. Clowns to the left of me. We left off in court on February 16th, with Amaranti arguing the defense's motion to quash the arrest. Now, I realized that it was a densely packed episode, filled with a ton of legal jargon and argument. But as you know, I've been training you all season to be prepared for these exact moments. When I am going through what happened with these motions, I am telling you verbatim from the transcripts what took place. The words you hear are the words of the lawyers and the judge, not some version that I've cleaned up to make for better listening. So if at particular times, a particular argument may seem tough to follow, well, that's because the argument was tough to follow. Now, even I, as a seasoned attorney, have a tough time determining exactly which motion or motions were being litigated on February 16th. I know what Judge Garippo stated, what was supposed to be argued, 
but so much of what came in during that hearing just had nothing to do with a motion to quash the arrest. And I'm not sure if you caught it at the end of the hearing, but Kunkel requested that based on the testimony that was heard, that the court ruled that the second warrant of December 21st be found to be valid, thereby alleviating the possibility that any evidence found pursuant to that warrant could be suppressed. Now, Garibo seemingly ignored Kunkel's request as he simply didn't acknowledge it when he gave his ruling. Garippo did give some clarity as to what he considered to be argued, and that was a motion to suppress evidence based on the invalid arrest as opposed to a motion to quash the arrest, which he stated did not exist in the law. He denied the defense's motion to suppress based on the fact that nothing of consequence took place, such as a statement by the creep or the collection of evidence between the time of the weed arrest and when they actually arrested him for the murder at 10.30 p.m meaning quite simply that there was nothing to suppress. So as we head to the 21st of February, as you can imagine, the press had a field day in reporting all of the intricate details of the investigation that were brought out by the state on the 16th and had been unknown until that point in time. In the courtroom, the score stands state one, defense zero, in the case of the People versus John Wayne Gacy. And it is on this day that my father, Bob Mata Sr., is finally allowed to say anything of substance in the case. He will be arguing the defense's motions to quash the search warrants of the 13th and the 21st of December, respectively, as well as the three that followed those. Now, I'm a bit biased, but my father was one hell of a trial attorney, and I'm going to be going to the transcripts quite a bit for this particular hearing. Now, he cites a lot of case law to support his positions throughout the arguments because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. However, in the actual hearing, when he cites a case to support his position, he recites the facts of that case and then the holding of the court. I'll be skimming over those portions of the hearing. Otherwise, this would be a five-hour episode, and none of us want that, particularly Darren. True. Yeah, it's true. Let's dig in. Garippo wastes not one moment of time as argument on the motions begins as soon as the bailiff calls the court to order. Mata advises the court that he will be addressing the issue of the first warrant initially. He will then proceed to the second warrant. Now, this particular motion will not have witnesses. It is all legal argument, so no one will be testifying. Just lawyers running their mouths. Mata first addresses the face of the first warrant, the four corners of the document, which in regular layman's language, translates into only the words written in the warrant itself. Quote, I believe the law is clear, Your Honor, with respect to the person and the place to be described. There is a requirement that the person to be searched and the place to be searched be described with particularity and specificity. The description must be so specific in fact and so accurate as to avoid any unnecessary or unauthorized invasions into the rights of security. It should identify the premises so accurately that it leaves no discretion whatsoever to the police officer. The same holds true with the description of the person. The person to be searched also must be as accurate as that of the place." End quote. Mata then cites a case to support his position. Then he continues, quote, Your Honor, with respect to the warrant issued December 13, 1978, the warrant itself commands that John W. Gacy be searched. There is no further description of Mr. Gacy. There is no description as to his race, his weight, his height, color of his hair, 
color of his eyes. This particular description is by name only. So what we have is simply the name of John Wayne Gacy. Without the state showing that they knew Mr. Gacy well before December 13th, well enough to identify him to the exclusion of all other people, I believe that the name itself would not be enough. There has been no showing that before December 13th, any specific officer or officers that executed the search warrant on that particular day had knowledge of Mr. Gacy to the degree that they would not search anyone else to the exclusion of all people. There may be evidence from the 13th to the 21st that would allow the officers to become aware and know Mr. Gacy well enough, but before the 13th, I think not." End quote. In support of this argument, he cites Supreme Court case United States versus Baca, and that's B-A-C-A. Mata then goes on to argue that the warrant also listed the wrong address for Gacy's address. It listed the correct number and street name, but listed the wrong town. Now, if this seems like nitpicky bullshit, well, it is, but it matters. You've been hearing me talk about warrants and how specific they need to be, and that is not done to make the cops job harder. It's done to protect us, the citizens, from unreasonable searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. Believe me, when the cops are executing a warrant, all they have to go by is what is written on the warrant. So if the wrong address is listed and it's a no-knock warrant, which means that they're busting down the door and coming in, it can end in a terrible fashion. Think about Brianna Taylor, ex-boyfriend who doesn't live at her address, no-knock warrant, innocent woman killed after police force entry. Now, that's an extreme example, but it's real. It happens. There are rules that must be followed by law enforcement. That's why lawyers nitpick. Mata continues, quote, I think in both of these arguments, with respect to the name of the person and the place to be searched, that it's incumbent upon the state to show by clear and convincing evidence that there is prior knowledge of the police officers of Mr. Gacy and prior knowledge of the place to be searched. Otherwise, the description in the warrant itself is insufficient, end quote. Mata then goes on to attack the items to be seized, which fall into two categories the items which were actually listed within the four corners of the warrant, and the items that were actually seized, which were not contained within the warrant. As far as the items listed in the warrant, it consisted of a light blue down jacket and a hood, tan-colored Levi pants, brown wedge-type suede shoes, a brown leather wallet, a Levi t-shirt, along with hair samples, blood-stained clothing, dry blood samples, along with his three vehicles. Now, this argument is substantially similar to the argument made regarding the person and the property. There must be specificity. Quote, the law is clear that where particular property as described in this warrant is to be seized, that it must be described with such certainty that there may be no possibility that the officer will seize the wrong property. End quote. Mata goes on to detail just exactly how lacking in specificity the items listed in the warrant were, noting lack of sizes, men or women's, button or zippers, parka or ski jacket, etc., etc. He claims that this lack of specificity tells the officers nothing and gives them total discretion as to what they seize. Kunkel at this point makes an objection that he doesn't believe that the entire area that Mata is arguing is raised in the defense's motion. Therefore, 
it's not before the court. Mata, in turn, reads directly from the motion wherein it clearly indicates that items 1 through 39, including the Nissan receipt, are all a part of the motion to quash. Carippo overrules the objection. Mata continues his argument. Quote, Judge, my argument is what right does the state have to seize any of these items? I think the law is clear that warrants shall particularly describe the things to be seized and makes general searches under them impossible. That is the reason to have items particularly described. So that general rummaging, unbridled searches can be stopped and prevented. Hundreds of state cases say that an item not listed in the search warrant cannot be seized. Here we have a search warrant. The state has gone far beyond the warrant and has seized everything in the house. Mata then goes on to read the text from the Fourth Amendment that prohibits unconstitutional searches. He cites case law that cements this concept within the courts of law. Grippo interrupts him. Quote, counsel, you don't have to argue the reasoning behind the Fourth Amendment to me. Mata responds, quote, Your Honor, I, I can't argue it any better than Martin versus the United States. That's the Supreme Court of the country, rather than reviewing it in my own words. End quote. Grippo replies, you don't have to reaffirm the principles of warrants, probable cause, description of property, what have you. We will accept those rules and we will follow them. My father responds, I understand that the court will accept those rules, Your Honor, but I am of the position that an argument of this nature requires that certain fundamental principles be brought out for the cogency of the argument itself. I am not saying that the court doesn't understand, know, and will not accept those principles. All right, Garippo states simply. Mata continues, quote, from the face of the four corners of this warrant, from the principles laid down from the early 1900s to present date, I see no way that this search warrant itself on its face can be sustained. I would like to make one particular point before I leave this subject, and that is item number 12 on Kozenzak's inventory, the red customer receipt number 361119, Nissan Pharmacy, from the kitchen trash basket. Clearly, Judge, the receipt is not listed on the warrant itself. It was not in any alleged coat belonging to Robert Peast. Apparently, it was not in plain view, and in and of itself, it is not dangerous or contraband. I can't see that it would fall within the plain view doctrine where they could seize this property. I point to this specifically, Judge, because it is in the complaint for the second search warrant. My father then cites People v. Coolidge, where the Supreme Court held that where the state knows of a particular item and where it is not mentioned in the warrant, then it is a violation of the express constitutional requirement of warrants that particularly describe the things to be seized." End quote. Okay, so we of course are aware that what Badeau testified to about buyers telling him or anybody about the receipt on December 12th is an out and out lie. So the fact of the matter is that it would have been impossible for the state to list the receipt on the warrant of the 13th because they didn't know it existed. I have told you that we are pretty active in reading reviews and comments about the pod, and I have read more than a few times that the receipt being planted is an interesting theory. I feel the need to repeat that this is not a theory, but an absolute fact. The photo receipt was planted in the sense that it was injected into evidence as if it had been found in Gacy's kitchen garbage on the 13th. That did not happen. 
If the cops telling you flat out that it didn't happen isn't enough for you to accept that as an unequivocal truth, I'm not sure exactly what you need to hear to accept it. One man's testimony at either of these motion hearings would have blown the state's case against the creep to pieces. And that, of course, is Carl Humbert. The defense was all over the receipt and was trying to get it suppressed. They were so dangerously close to exposing the lie, I cannot express how internally anxious the state must have been about these motions and the possibility that the defense would somehow discover that Humbert had been in that house on the 13th. Because based on our conversations with Humbert, I find it hard to believe that anyone from the state would have been able to convince him to get on the stand and lie about the recovery of the receipt and the fact that no smell of putrefied flesh existed in the crawl. He just doesn't seem to be that guy. But I digress. Mata then specifically asked the court to suppress the receipt as well as every other item that was recovered on the 13th. Mata then attempts to argue about the reliability of Kim Byers and Mrs. Peast as far as supplying the information about Robbie's last night on Earth and saying that that was insufficient to establish probable cause. Garippo challenges Mata's assertion, stating that reliability only applies when you're using an anonymous informant. Mata tells the judge, quote, Judge, I beg to differ with the court with all due respect, end quote. Mata then cites several cases which support his position that reliability indeed applies to private citizens as well as to confidential informants. He then insists that he is not saying that Mrs. Peast and Kim Byers are not reliable and credible people. If he knew then what we know now, he would not be making the statement, at least as to Byers. But the state did not state sufficient facts in this warrant to allow the court to make an independent judgment as to their credibility, which is required. Mata continues, quote, there are certain statements in the complaint for search warrant moving from that particular point, judge, to statements of mere belief or conclusions. Looking at the complaint, it states that on the day in question, John Wayne Gacy was observed in the store at 1922 Tui Avenue on two different occasions, one at 6 p.m. and a second time at 8 p.m., at which time he stayed in the store until about 8.50 p.m. Nowhere in here does it state where the officer arrived at that particular conclusion, where he got that information from. Was it a personal observation? Did he hear it from someone else? Was he there himself on both these different occasions? Was there another witness? If there was, none of them are listed here, which makes that a bold conclusion. Secondly, first page of the complaint, at which time Peast went outside of the store to meet with John Gacy. That is total speculation. There is nothing in there in this entire warrant or complaint for warrant that would indicate that Robert Peast went out to talk to John Gacy other than the fact that there is a conclusion here that John Gacy was in the store. But no one saw any conversation outside the store. Robert Peast, in fact, never mentioned John Gacy's name. End quote. Look, I get it. As we sit here now, arguments like this in court seem like they make no sense. Because after all, it turned out that Gacy had, in fact, abducted and killed Rob Peace, along with at least 32 other young men. But that's not what motions and criminal trials are about. The judge cannot look or consider what resulted 
from the invalid warrant or arrest, they must enter a mental time machine of sorts and transport themselves back to the time at which the events took place, in this case, December 11th. If it seems really hard for any judge to try and pretend like they don't know what they do know, well, that's because it is. But the law requires it. I'm just not sure, as human beings, they are able to accomplish this mandate all the time. Mata finally addresses that last item that was contained in the original complaint for the warrant of the 13th, which was that Gacy had been arrested 10 years prior for sodomy in Iowa. He then reviews exactly all that was contained in the first complaint. The statements about Gacy being there, that Rob said he was going to speak with the contractor and that he'd be right back, and the sodomy charge. That's the total sum. He then argues, quote, there is no statement, even looking at them as true, accurate, acceptable statements, no statement of any crime being committed, none. They're asking you to speculate. Conjecture cannot be used to find probable cause. They have to give you sufficient facts, Your Honor, for you to make an independent judgment that a crime is or has been committed or that evidence is at a certain place to be searched. Looking at this complaint in the very best light, it is inconceivable that probable cause could be found without disregarding the principles of law and resorting to speculation and conjecture. Those principles are well-established, well-settled." End quote. Mata wraps up his argument with the following statement, quote, Your Honor, I think the state has broken the rules here. Oh, he has no idea. I think that they have done what they were prohibited from doing, prohibited by law. I think that they have seized what they were prohibited from seizing. And I think the test of any system of government is whether or not that government can follow its own rules. Now, I ask the court to tell the state that they cannot engage in such conduct. But more importantly, I ask this court to teach the state that this conduct will not be condoned in the future. I ask this court to suppress the evidence." End quote. Kunkel then stands to say his piece in rebuttal, but before he does, Garippo jumps in. Quote, all right, I can shorten part of this argument. With respect to the argument about searching John W. Gacy as named in the warrant, I think that there is sufficient description with a name and an address that's been sufficiently identified. And the argument as far as the reliability of the informer in view of the fact that Mrs. Peast and Kim Byers are actually named and are private citizens, I don't think that the question of the reliability of the informer is at issue. I mean, the person is no longer an informant, it's just someone furnishing information." End quote. So Garippo has ruled in the first two issues already in favor of the state, without having to hear the state's response in order to reach these conclusions. He then lets Kunkel address what's left, which he does. He first addresses the specificity of the items named in the warrant, the blue jacket, the shoes, the pants, the wallet, and the like. He keeps it short and sweet. Quote, I don't think it's necessary to give the manufacturer of a blue jacket describing the color and the style of a garment is the kind of characteristics that the case law talks about. And for that reason, I believe that the characteristics of the items listed in the warrant itself are adequate for that purpose. 
Kunkel then addresses the item seized on the 13th. He cites the Coolidge case, which my father cited. Now, Kunkel interprets the rule of law from that case to be that the seizures of items not named in the warrant, not only in plain view, but also as a product of a search that come up while executing an otherwise lawful search, and that these items don't need to be necessarily unexpectedly turned up during the search. Kunkel then applies the rule from Coolidge to the case at the bar, in particular, the photo receipt. Quote, immediately, it was not named in the warrant, but I don't think that there's any question that it fits the test of Coolidge, it being some type of incriminating evidence that turned up during the lawful search and was seized pursuant to that search. I don't think there is any question on the record before this court as to the importance of this particular item and how it ties up with the other evidence right on the face of the materials that are before the court. As counsel points out, the complaint for the second search warrant set forth in detail the relevance and materiality of that particular item and explains on the face of that complaint for warrant exactly why the officers seized it while they were executing the first warrant. Now, it should be crystal clear to all of you out there why what happened with the photo receipt is such a big deal. It was the most important piece of evidence in the case, up until, of course, they began unearthing the victim's remains. Every other item of evidence is left in the rearview mirror as the receipt takes center stage. As far as Kunkel's argument goes, I disagree that the face of the complaint for the second warrant explains why they seized it on the 13th. They needed Badeau on the stand on the 16th, stating that buyers told him about the receipt on the 12th, which did not happen, in order for Kunkel's argument to make any sense. They knew nothing at all about any receipt on the 12th or the 13th. You can't search for something that you don't know exists. The reality was that the defense simply had nothing in their possession at this point or at any point to rebut this narrative. You are now beginning to see exactly just how precisely everything had to fall into place in order for this receipt to make it into evidence and survive being suppressed. It was a tightrope act the whole way through. Kunkel goes on to reply to the rest of the points argued by Mata, in particular that the contractor in question was in fact Gacy. But again, they didn't know this at the time that the warrant was issued. My dad was right. It was speculation or maybe an educated guess at best. Kunkel is concise in his arguments and believes what he says to be true. He thanks the court and he takes a seat. At this point, Amaranti rises and asks the court if he may have the last word. And the first thing out of his mouth articulates the main thrust of his argument. Quote, Judge, I do not think Mr. Kunkel could legally justify a search now by looking back as we all tend to do. And I don't envy this court at this point of having to blind itself to what has been found. But I think that's exactly what this court has to do." End quote. Amaranti makes the following argument regarding the receipt. Quote, pursuant to Officer Badeau's testimony the other day, he stated that he had a conversation with a Miss Byers on December 12th. During that conversation, 
he testified that it was revealed that a certain receipt may have been in the possession of Robbie Peast. The police had knowledge of that. They had knowledge allegedly pursuant to the testimony under oath by Officer Bedell. Yet nowhere in the search warrant or complaint for warrant for the 13th, which was signed after the alleged revelation, does it state that they had knowledge of a receipt. But yet, when a receipt is found in the garbage in the house, not in plain view, it is subsequently used in another search warrant. This was a mere fishing expedition. Amaranti goes on to repeat his argument of the 16th about how the court cannot ignore the law because of the horrors of what have been discovered, because the Constitution doesn't just protect Gacy, it protects all citizens. With that, he sits, and arguments on the most critical motions in the Gacy case are complete. Typically in a case of this magnitude, the judge will take a motion of this kind of importance and will take it under advisement, which basically means that they will sleep on it and get back to you at a later time after they've had time to review the evidence and argument. While it's true that waiting is the hardest part, as a lawyer for either side, you want the judge to reflect thoughtfully on what lays before them. And from the judge's perspective, you don't want to be hasty when ruling on motions like this because you don't want to get overturned on appeal due to a rushed decision. Garippo wasn't taking anything under advisement. He didn't even take a brief recess to think about it. Nope, he got right into his ruling, which was as follows. Quote, as I read this complaint for search warrant, the search warrant itself, the first problem I have is that it is unartfully drawn. From looking at the inventory of things seized here, apparently it did turn into somewhat of a general search by taking things far removed from the warrant. And I imagine many of these things might be difficult to justify under any plain view evidence rule. As I see it, I'd like to start with the complaint rather than the warrant because the warrant follows the complaint. Apparently there is a great deal of probable cause stated connecting John Gacy with the disappearance of Robert Peast. And I find that it's adequately stated, showing a connection between John Gacy and the disappearance of Robert Peast. It is a fact in the law that probable cause doesn't mean proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There's sufficient evidence to show that Robert Peast was supposed to be gone only a few minutes and that he knew his mother was waiting for him. He's going to talk with Gacy, and I find that this information about the prior background of Gacy does add to the probable cause. The first problem that I see with it is that once you have probable cause connecting Peast with Gacy, does either side have any cases with respect to going to the next step? Or what argument do you have with respect to going to Gacy's home to search Gacy's home in these vehicles? Now, with respect to the clothing items to be described, the fact is that some items cannot be alleged with particularity. However, it does not state in the warrant whose items these are. I suppose it's supposed to mean the property of Robert Peast. I noticed to that that there is a brown leather wallet mentioned. It doesn't state whose it is. I find nothing in the inventory showing that any brown leather wallet was in fact found from the evidence that I heard the other day. Apparently, they looked through the trash basket. Apparently, a wallet is a small enough item to look through a trash basket. I feel even from the information that they testified that they had and reading the complaint for the search warrant, I find while looking through the trash for a smaller item such as a brown leather wallet, they could in fact seize 
the Nissan pharmacy customer receipt, end quote. Okay, so right there, Garippo has just told both sides the receipt is in. It's not getting suppressed. His rationale is that in looking for a small brown wallet, that a kitchen trash can is a reasonable place for law enforcement to look for such an item, as the perpetrator may very well be looking to conceal or dispose of the evidence. And while looking for said wallet, if they come across another piece of evidence that is indicia of a crime having been committed in plain view, that's fair game for the cops to seize. Garippo is right on the law, but here, in order for him to get to the point that he believes what would otherwise be considered an innocuous piece of paper, as opposed to, say, a weapon of some type, drug paraphernalia, bloody rag, or any of the things that we typically think of as evidence of a crime having been committed, he had to believe the testimony of Badeau, that buyers told him of the receipt being placed in Rob P's pocket. It's the only way that he can reach the conclusion that the small slip of paper was in fact evidence that a crime had been committed. My biggest problem with him reaching that conclusion is that if in fact law enforcement had learned of the receipt on the 12th, which we know that they didn't, why in the hell wasn't it included in the warrant along with all of the other items of Rob's that they listed? The defense made this argument and they were right. This should have been a major red flag for Garippo, but he whiffed on it. And the defense at this juncture did not have Detective Adams' report, which we have thoroughly reviewed in the pod, to support the fact that on the 12th, buyers didn't say one word about a receipt being placed in Rob's pocket. My question is that when and if the defense received these reports of Adams in discovery, why didn't they raise the issue with the court as Garippo had given them the ability to do so back on February 16th? I think we may get our answer to that in a bit as Garippo continues with his ruling. He goes on to say that he does take issue with the class ring with the letters JAS inscribed and states that he will go over the transcript with respect to that item. Garippo then asks the lawyers again for case law as to how the search of Gacy himself, which he found sufficient probable cause for, turned into a warrant for the search of Gacy's home, which he is not so certain that probable cause existed for. Kunkel responds first, quote, I respectfully disagree with counsel. I don't believe you read the warrant and the complaint together. If both the contractor John Gacy and Robert Peace disappeared from the pharmacy together at 8.50 to 9 o'clock p.m. on that given night, and, in fact, it was indicated that he had these vehicles, which are named in the warrant. And, in fact, when the police went to the residence and those vehicles were, in fact, there, I think it's a proper inference to be drawn from the face of the complaint that one of the logical places that he might take the Peast Boy, if, in fact, he did take him, would be his home in one of those vehicles. And I think that the conclusion fairly leaps from the complaint itself. And I know the court's aware of Illinois cases that logical inferences can be drawn from the complaint of the search warrant, end quote. Amaranti then chimes in, quote, Judge, I don't believe Mr. Gacy's name is mentioned in the first search warrant. I believe the statement from the witness or the informant or whatever the court wishes to call her is that the boy was going to talk to a contractor. This was like double or triple hearsay, number one, and there is no name. 
We don't know if there's another contractor that had been in the store or would the police have probable cause to search that contractor's house? I think that's where the probable cause goes and there's nothing related that would go to Gacy's house. Kunkel then responds, quote, I indicate that probably the most important factor that I would ask the court not to lose sight of here is that plainly from the dictate of the search warrant and the complaint, they're not only looking for Robert Peast and the body of Robert Peast himself, they're looking for evidence that Robert Peast was present there, might have been carried or transported in one of the vehicles or came to harm there. Many of the items that are in that list of 39 in and of themselves, you know, may not appear to be material and relevant. And as the court has already pointed out, that is issues which very well may be presented in terms of evidential rulings by the court either in lemonade or actually during trial as to whether any of those given elements were A, relevant and material, or B, in fact, was seized properly under the Coolidge or Hayden doctrines. Now, that's not the issue before the court at this time. But I would suggest to the court, merely by way of argument in this matter, that some of those items, for instance, I believe it was a towel, if it had blood on them, I think the court might feel that that might be a reasonable thing for officers investigating under the auspices of this warrant to search and seize at that time. And I think that the only element of those 39 that the court must specifically rule on in terms of the further warrants and warrant applications is the Nissan pharmacy slip. And I think that there is sufficient evidence before the court for the court to make that determination. Again, because it's before the court on the face of the second Warren complaint. And I think that that clearly gives probable cause as to why the officers would have retrieved that particular item. Also, Judge, in the last paragraph, which refers to the prior sodomy arrest, it refers specifically to 15 and 16-year-olds. That kind of conduct was to be carried out. Where would the individual go? You know, would it take place on the sidewalk, in the Nissan pharmacy? Or is it reasonable or a reasonable inference to be drawn from the total presentation of probable cause in this complaint that, in fact, the home of the individual would be a likely place to search for evidence of the boy. And again, I think that it's a crucial distinction here, an important point that they are not only looking for the body of Robert Peast, they are looking for evidence of his whereabouts. They are looking for evidence of any possible crimes that may have been committed upon him. I think that casts a different light on the reasonableness of going through the house. With that, Garippo takes a lunch break, at which time both the defense and the state take the opportunity to race to the law library to search for case law to support their respective positions. Both sides can tell quite clearly that Garippo is on the fence as to whether just because he found probable cause to search Gacy himself, he is not sure whether that extends to Gacy's house and vehicles. Both sides present Garippo with case law after the break. After reviewing the cases, Garippo goes on the record, cites the cases, all three of which cite facts wherein a crime was committed away from the perpetrator's home, and in all the cases, the courts found that without any further statements of probable cause being required, that the search of the home for the purpose of recovering a weapon used in the crime was found to be reasonable. Garippo is more than satisfied and rules. Quote, 
I find that there is probable cause stated in the complaint for the search warrant. I adopt the argument of Mr. Kunkel with respect to it. It is merely a search for evidence and it is reasonable to feel that the home is a place that might lawfully and reasonably be searched in view of the probable cause that was stated. So the motion to quash the search warrant dated December 13th, 1978 will be denied. And here's a pause for a worthy cause. Hey, D, can I ask you something? Um, sure, Rob. Do you care about the planet? Of course, Bob. Yeah, me too, man. Um, it's actually very important to me. You know, I've got a lot of kids and I'd actually like to have them have a place to exist in, uh, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, long-term goals. Yeah, man. You know, taking care of the planet matters, which is why in particular, I love this particular sponsor of ours, Ana Luisa. And so one of the reasons that I love them so much is the way that they, they care about the environment and everything that they do. For instance, that according to the World Bank, the fashion industry, Darren, is responsible for 10% of annual global carbon emissions. Did you know that? I mean, obviously I did not know that, Bob. I mean, that's a huge amount. How would right? I possibly have known that? Like, I, I wasn't aware of it either until I, you know, kind of was digging into Ana Luisa and figuring out what they're all about. So in 2020, what Ana Luisa did is they became carbon neutral, which is a carbon balancing the entirety of its CO2 footprint for the net zero output. So every piece of your collection is literally carbon invisible. I mean, that's cool, man. Like they're the company that cares. So D, this year you and I both came down with COVID. Uh, dude, brutal. Wasn't fun. Right at the holidays, of course, you know. Christmas day. Christmas day. And, you know, I think Allison actually, um, my wife had contracted it right around Christmas day as well. And I wasn't feeling great pre-Christmas. So, and I was panicked, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that just takes, you know, his good sweet time on Christmas shopping. You know, a lot of Amazon work is done. Um, you know, but I had wanted to get Allison some jewelry. So, you know, the crunch time was approaching massively and I was freaking out and I'm like, man, what should I do? And boom, it came to me, uh, you know, like a, like a piece of gold dropping from heaven. And I'm like, Ana Luisa, you know, I'm going to go to, to shop.analuisa.com and I'm going to find her some jewelry because it's all beautiful stuff. We had purchased some earlier in the year and we had gotten it for both Allison and my daughter and they both loved all the pieces they got. So you know, for me, that turned out to be an absolute lifesaver. And, you know, the one thing that I can tell you is that their pieces are timeless. They, they really are beautiful. They're incredibly affordable, you know, so I wasn't kind of stuck, like just kind of going all in on one piece. I think I literally got her four to five different pieces and she loves all of them. And, and the really cool thing about Ana Luisa's stuff is that you can kind of like what they call stack so, you know, this concept of stacking is basically like, so if you've got four pieces, you really have like 15 pieces because you can use the pieces interchangeably with one another and they look like different pieces. So if you put one piece with another piece, boom, you got a third piece. They really create beautiful products and I could not recommend them more. I absolutely recommend checking out Ana Luisa for all of your jewelry needs. It's amazing stuff. So go to HTTPS colon backslash backslash shop.analuisa.com backslash defense. Again, that's HTTPS colon backslash backslash shop.analuisa.com backslash defense. 
I love them. I love them. I love them. Their pieces start at 39 bucks with sales up to 25% off. So get all of your birthday, Valentine's Day, which is coming up. So boom, this is like the perfect time to absolutely go crazy at analoisa.com and make sure that you use HTTPS colon backslash backslash shop.analoisa.com backslash defense. D, what's up? Hey, man. How's it going? Amazing. So I'm super excited. One of my favorite sponsors of ours is is joining the club again. Who's that? Dude, that is HelloFresh. They are. HelloFresh. Dude, so good. If you're not aware of who they are out there, HelloFresh is a company that sends to your home farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to the crib. I have a question. Yes. I don't have to go to the grocery store. That is correct. Yeah. So, you know, you can skip your trips to the grocery store and you can count on HelloFresh to make cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. So, yeah, this week we we got Green Chef, which, you know, is now owned by HelloFresh. And what goes on with Green Chef is that they have now a wider array of meal plans to choose from. And there's something for everybody. I love switching between the brands. And now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. So, I mean, they sent, you know, they originally sent two boxes. I ate both of them because it was so good. So you didn't share. Yeah, I didn't share, you know, I mean, in the wee hours of the night. Exactly. Crept right out of bed, went downstairs, started cooking, you know, it's amazing. So all seriousness, green, like green chef. They, they do have different recipes, so it's a, it's a little bit different of a thing. So, you know, between the two of them, like no matter what your diet is, whatever restrictions you may have, they're going to have you covered between those two because you're always getting incredibly fresh ingredients and all of the recipes are off the hook delicious. So in terms of that, they offer flexibility that you can easily customize your order online or in the app. So, you know, when I order, sometimes I get lazy or sometimes I forget you know, like to change up my orders, like where I've used, uh, other companies in the past, you know, and I just keep getting the same thing over and over. It would build up in my refrigerator and then I'm inevitably throwing out huge amounts of food that never happens with HelloFresh because they make it so easy for me to go in and just change up my menus. Also D HelloFresh is 72% cheaper than going out to a restaurant. Okay. Just keep that in mind if you're on a tight budget, like us poor podcasters are, right? I need that to translate into dollars, please. Yeah, exactly. And you know how much you can save? That saves you over 65 bucks a month when you order HelloFresh instead of grocery shopping, which, which I know you love. God, I love it. You, dude, don't lie. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss grocery shopping. I think. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. It's your favorite thing. It's your favorite thing in the whole world. So, you know, guys, I, I, can't, I can't stress it enough. Go to HelloFresh.com slash defense 16 and use code defense 16 for up to 16 free meals and and three free gifts three free gifts, three free gifts. what are they hellofresh.com slash defense 16 and use code defense 16 for up to 16 free meals and and three free gifts. what are they so there it is the receipt is in There is virtually no way for the defense to get it out at this point, unless they file a motion to reconsider, which is basically when you're asking a judge to recognize that they got it wrong the first time. So as you can imagine, those are pretty tough to win. 
unless they can find a smoking gun that something was awry with the receipt, which we all know is the case, but no one on the defense team knows that and won't know it until this podcast uncovers it. So at this point, it's the state two defense zero, and they are now moving on to the motion to quash the warrant of December 21st. What do you think, boys and girls? You liking the defense's chances at prevailing on this motion? Right, not a chance in hell. Mata Senior begins. As opposed to relitigating and restating everything that he's already said on this day, he simply adopts his prior arguments, and he asks that for the record, they be applied to all still pending motions to quash warrants. Now, remember, only two items were stated in the complaint for the second search warrant, the receipt and the smell. He makes the following brief argument as to the second warrant of December 21st. Quote, with respect to the second warrant, Your Honor, of course the defense has realized you have ruled on the validity of the first warrant, but notwithstanding that, we would assert the receipt, of course, is the result of an illegal search. The receipt indicated in the complaint for warrant number two. And of course, anything obtained as a result of an illegal search cannot be used in any form or manner, including in a subsequent complaint for a search warrant. In addition to that, the second warrant or the complaint for the search warrant provides Officer Robert Schultz was in Mr. Gacy's home on December 19th, 1978, and that he detected an odor similar to that of putrefied human bodies. He stated that he was a police officer for 18 and a half years and that he had an occasion to smell such an odor on 40 different occasions. His statement that the smell in Mr. Gacy's residence smelled similar to the odor of a putrefied body is in the defense's opinion, just that, an opinion by a police officer. An opinion that, number one, he is not qualified to give. It takes the shape of a mere belief or conclusion. The law states that facts stated in a complaint for a search warrant must be sufficient so that if they were false, perjury could attach. I think with a statement such as this by this particular officer, that had it been false, in fact, were it false, that it could never attach perjury to a belief. I think that the line of cases that I cited as mere belief and conclusions not being enough to support probable cause would apply here. And I'm going to ask the court to do so." End quote. Now, neither Mata or Amaranti argue that the bizarre two-day gap from when Schultz allegedly smelled the decaying flush to when he finally allegedly tells Kozenzak should raise serious red flags for the court as far as Schultz's credibility with the court. Instead, Amaranti brings up the possibility that it could have been other things rotting down there again argument, which is as weak as water. With that, the defense rests. Once again, Garippo is ready to rule from the bench immediately. And this is how he ruled. Quote, while I've spent a great deal of time reading your motions and going from the last warrant to the first, it seems that each warrant certainly gets progressively better based on whatever was recovered in the first warrant. First leads to the second, second to the third, and all the way down the line. So apparently, certainly after the second warrant is issued and apparently skeletal remains are found, certainly the probable cause increased and the statements come in and what have you. And after examining the second warrant based on my ruling on the first, the second warrant has two things. It has the facts of the first plus the receipt and the smell of odor or the smell of bodies. I would think that even if the first warrant had been quashed and you deleted that item, 
that of the receipt being found, there would still be sufficient probable cause to issue the second warrant based on the facts alleged in the first and the conversation with Officer Schultz about the odor of the bodies. However, I think that the first warrant and the recovery of the first receipt is in fact valid. So the motion to quash all of the search warrants will be denied. End quote. So there it is. No beating around the bush. No lengthy recitation of the facts and the law. He just finds that there was sufficient probable cause and it got stronger and stronger with each warrant that was filed. Now, you're probably sitting there and saying, but Bob, Carippo just said, even if he had tossed the receipt, that he found that there was enough probable cause with the facts from the first warrant about Gacy and pieced at the pharmacy and the smell that he would have found that it was still a valid warrant. That blows up your entire theory that had the planet evidence been discovered that Garippo would have been forced to toss everything. The nightmare would have happened. They would have had no evidence to convict Gacy. The fact that Garippo says that changes nothing. If the defense had uncovered the wrongdoing of the police and potentially the state, it would have changed everything. Garippo makes these statements firmly believing that everything that Badeau testified to was on the up and up. If the lie had been exposed, that would have meant that Humbert was called in and he would have testified that both the receipt was not present and collected on the 13th and that he was in the crawl and it did not smell of decaying flesh at all. That would have left Garippo with only two things, the facts from the first, unartfully drafted complaint for warrant, which were barely enough to validate the search of Gacy and the home, and the fact that the other two items contained within the warrant were wholly fabricated. He would have been furious with law enforcement on the record, and he would have had no legal footing to stand on to uphold the validity of the second warrant. If he refused to invalidate the warrant and suppress the evidence as a result, because simply put, he wasn't going to be the asshole to let the most horrific serial killer to date walk out of the courtroom a free man, the appellate court would have, and they would have sent it back to the trial court with all of the evidence suppressed. There is not a case in the history of the United States wherein the court overlooks the planting of evidence because of the heinousness of the crimes committed. That's not how the system works. That is why this podcast has turned into a cautionary tale of what very easily could have been. Now, I know that we spent a lot of time on these motions, and that's because in essence, it was these motions where the case against Gacy would be won or lost. As it stands now, it's state five, defense zero. The trial, as you will soon hear, amounted to not much more than a foregone conclusion, with the only question to be answered being, could the defense convince the jury not to seek revenge? So Garippo sets the matter over for the end of February. But as far as we're concerned, the only motion of real importance left to be litigated is the motion for a change of venue, which is to get the case out of Cook County because the creep can't get a fair trial in Chicago because of the press coverage. Let's check out what's going on outside of the courtroom. As March begins and the weather starts to break and the freezing temperatures subside and the snow begins to melt, it means two things. One, that the terra firma can now be pierced by a shovel once again. And two, that the rivers 
are flowing. In mid-March, the cops are back at it at 8213 Somerdale, and two more gruesome discoveries are made. A body is recovered from the area near the barbecue pit. John, they've, uh, I've explained to you that they've uncovered a body. They say it was under the area that the dining room table was, and you started to explain to me uh, that, uh, let me ask you, was that area uh, under the place where the dining room table was accessible by way of the crawl space? No. Now, do you recall uh, if that floor was ever up, if you had ever removed the floor, what type of work were you doing? I'm not sure. We, tore, we took all the tile off the floor when we recarpeted. Now, when you say we, who are you talking about? Michael Rossi. I don't know if David Perrin was there, but Michael Rossi was there. I think 76. In 1976, I put a new floor in. So, we, t we took the tile and stuff off of the floor in the dining room. When I say we, that was done by... Uh, Rossi, Michael Rossi, and I think Rick, Randy Stewart. Anyhow, we took that out, and... Is Randy Stewart alive? To the best of my knowledge, yeah. He lives on Higgins, so... Um, there the reason I ask is, in one of the statements that I read, you mentioned that somebody that's dead may be named Randy... I did. Or David. Well, when we get to the statements, I'll point it out to you. Okay. Go ahead. So um, you're, you're, when that dining room floor was up, remove the floor. Michael Rossi then proceeded to put, uh, well, all we did was we pulled the ductwork out of the, the sidewalk and made it come up through the, through the floor. Did you have to remove the, the floor room? paneling? In the dining yeah. room? When the floor paneling, how That's long did the whole job take, yeah. Uh... I think Rossi took one day to do it. Just one? The floor was only up one day? Well, maybe two days, but I don't think... Uh, yeah, it might have been out two days. All right. The floor was torn apart for more than one day, yeah. I'm assuming it's two days or maybe longer. In that period of time, did you bring anybody back to your house? Not that I know. Do you recall what day, month of 76 this was that you lifted the uh, dining room floor? I... I would think that it was in 77, early 77. So what we did is, then Rossi changed the ductwork to the only way to do it is open up the floor. And we opened up the floor and we took the floor off. I think it was, uh, now that I think of it, it was out two days because when we opened it up, we found out we had to get more parts. You recall that it was in the summer months? I think it was in the winter months, but I'm not positive. During that period of time when the floor was up, do you recall bringing anybody back to your house? No. Do you recall burying anybody down there? No. I don't recall. Do you recall anything at all about a body being down there, Jenny? For what reason? The dining room floor having been up for maybe two days or so. And Rossi helped you, is that right? Yes. All right, do you remember bringing anybody back to your place? Nope. Do you remember anything specific about those? I don't know if I want to, you know, here's, here's, here's the part that I don't know. And it's speculation.
I saw my point. Could have been that I went out on that Friday night, brought somebody back home, put them down in there, and Rossi and I closed it up the next day. I don't know. I'm only speculating. I don't know. Well, it had to happen either that way or another way. That well, you got to remember. Yeah, that's the only I, way you can get I'm trying to right? Remember. Is that the only way you have to go have the floor up, right? Yeah. I'm trying to remember if Rossi was in the house there without. I know he did the, the duck work by himself, but I don't know if I was there the whole time. Because one of us had to go get the duck work parts. And that would be all the way down to uh, 1906. Milwaukee Avenue, because I get them from Van Voorhis. He's down at Armitage in Western. From my house. So you had to you recall specifically whether you and Rossi went out after working on your dining room. No, I know we got into a fight. About what? Just an argument. He, he wanted to get home to camp. He had told me he'd help. Then he, then he wanted to get out of there. What time was it? Well, this was around 3 or 4 o'clock. You know, we, we're getting into an argument that anytime he wants something, you know, it was always, let's do it right now. But I was ready to lay the fucking card. I wanted to close up the floor because the fucking thing has been open for a couple of days. I said, let's get this fucking thing closed up. No, we can do it tomorrow. I'll come over in the morning. I said, Michael, I know how you are. On Sunday morning, you like to sleep until noon. I said, I want the fucking thing closed up. So we, we hassled back and forth. Then we proceeded to lay the carpeting. We laid the carpeting. We had sex. And then we left. Everything must have been all right when we left. But the thing wasn't covered up. Yeah. By that time, it was. There was he had put the floor back then? in on Saturday. There was a second day? So Friday night was the only night that it yeah, was. Yeah, I would think it was out, out Thursday, Friday, and the floor was put back in Saturday. You remember specifically that it was put in on Saturday. Why? Because I know it was, because we, we, I just told you, Sunday he wants to sleep. He didn't want to come back on a Sunday. Are you though. just figuring that from past experience, or you remember specifically? No, the reason, all right, the reason most of my work was always done on weekends is because we had jobs to do during the week. See, you, so you don't again, have to show up on a job. You don't have to. No, it's not an assumption. It's, it's a matter of fact. Most of my work was either done late at night at my but house. You don't remember specifically about the dining room floor. Independent recollection that it was done on Saturday. Not saying, well, no, I, I usually do work on Saturday no. because I have jobs. No, I'm not. I, I would think it was done on a Thursday, and a Friday, and a Saturday. Because we got to do the argument on a Saturday, and he stayed until 11 o'clock. So that. Saturday night to finish it. That would make it Thursday night the floor would be up? I think we didn't get the carpeting until Thursday. Because you had to order the carpeting the week before. And we didn't I don't think we got the carpeting until Thursday. So that would mean the floor would have to be made ready and it took a day or so to make the floor ready because when we opened up the floor we didn't have the parts to do the heating work. So the heating work was done on Friday during the day. Okay. How many nights was the floor open? Thursday and Friday? I would think Thursday and Friday, Friday nights and I was put back together uh, on Saturday morning. Do you remember going out Thursday night with Michael all alone? You know, when you were doing that job, you remember? I might have been out job. on Friday night, yeah. I, I'm out almost every Friday night. you remember specifically being out on that Friday night? Can you make any connection with? Bob, I can't make a connection with a Friday night if I don't even know what Friday night it was. I mean... All right, skip trying to remember what Friday night it was, but try to put it in the frame of mind or 
in the frame of reference just with the dining room work. Connect it that way. You remember, like after putting well, the tools up. It seemed up, to be, and after we did the duct work, he had to cut the plywood because the duct work had to come up through the plywood. Mm -hmm. Okay? So he had to complete the duct work, and it had to be done probably on a, on a Friday or Saturday. Because normally, see on Monday, if we're going to start a job, we start on Monday and move with it. And if we have a lull or anything, that's when I would piece in my work. Now, we, it might have been a week where we had three days at a place, and then we had the next two days off. You remember specifically quitting working in the dining room and going out and eating or going to a bar or anything? Yeah, I, I think I can recall that we, we shut down early on both Thursday and Friday night. Because Rossi worked with me on Saturday night because he bitched about it. Because we got into an argument over it. I've told you that. Else you can tell me about this uh, new, newfound body that you can recall anything at all, whether you think it's important or not about the days you were working on the on the dining room. Well, that was it. No, what I what I told you is that that's the only time that I know of, to the best of my knowledge, that uh, the only time that floor has ever been out. And you don't remember. That has to be in, in 76 or 77. It's the only time to the best of my knowledge that that floor was ever on. You don't remember burying anybody? No. Is there possible there's more there, John? You're just as good as mine. And I'm not being facetious in that. I just... All right, we'll get off that for a while. I'd like first to of all, I'll go back to my first statement. Coming up with these other two have surprised completely. Because I, I would have been willing to bet on it. So would I, Jen. I was the very sure. I was convinced not, there the were no more. not find nothing else by, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, and I will still stand on it. If they fucking level the whole land, and they dig the fucking thing down six feet in a whole lot, the whole 60 feet across and the whole 140 feet long. If they, they dig down six feet through the whole fucking lot, you're not going to find them. And I would have said it before these last two discoveries, too. And you still feel the same way? I still feel that way. On March 20th, Dr. Stein confirms the identity of 16-year-old William Carroll, who had gone missing on June 13th of 1976. He was last known to have been driving around Clark and Diversey in the city with a group of friends. This was an absolute hunting ground of the creeps. The body count has now grown to 32. The victim discovered buried near the barbecue pit still to this day remains unidentified. Now there was a ring found on the ring finger of the skeletal remains of what would have been the victim's left hand. Victim number 29, the last body that would be found on Gacy's property, was identified as 18-year-old Daryl Sampson, born December 6, 1957, who was thought to be preparing to get married. He also appears to be yet another of the creep's young men that was lured in by the promise of a job. On April 6, 1979, Dr. Stein announces that 16 of the 32 known victims of Gacy were either strangled or suffocated by a cloth being stuck down their throats. Also on the 6th, a Cook County judge in the Municipal Division ruled in favor of an emergency order allowing for the demolition of the home located at 8213 Somerdale. 
Kunkel and the state had filed a petition stating the house was a public nuisance and a threat to the health and safety of the public as well. Now, this was done in order to circumvent having to wait for the criminal court to make a decision on whether or not the house could be torn down. On April 9th of 1979, now Captain Kozenzak received a phone call. It would turn out to be the phone call that he was most desperately waiting for and also the phone call that he least wanted to receive. Kozenzak listened intently as the voice on the other line informed him that a body had been pulled from the Illinois River by the Grundy County Sheriff's Department near Joliet. The stature and weight of the body, Kozenzak was told, may fit that of suspected Gacy victim Robert Peast. He was told that the body was being transported to Kurtz Memorial Chapel in New Lenox, Illinois. Kozenzak hung up the phone and immediately called Terry Sullivan to tell him of the news. He then grabbed Detective Adams and they left to meet with Sullivan and Investigator Badeau, who all proceeded to drive down to the chapel. Upon arrival, Kozenzak directed the Grundy County Sheriff to transport the body to Silver Cross Hospital in Joliet for further examination. At the hospital, x-rays of the skull were taken and a Dr. Pavlik compared the x-rays of the newly discovered body to the x-rays of Robert Peace's skull that Kozenzak was in possession of. Upon close examination, Dr. Pavlik confirmed that the body removed from the river was in fact Robert Peast. Kozenzak and Adams jumped in their cruiser and drove directly to the Peast's home to inform Elizabeth and Harold Peast that sadly, at long last, their beloved son's remains had been found. The final piece of the puzzle in the case against Gacy was finally in place. The final autopsy of Robbie Peast was performed by Dr. Stein on April 10th, after which he authorized the release of the body to the Peast family for burial. On April 11th, Dr. Stein identified body number seven as that of 15-year-old Randall Ruffett, who had gone missing on or around May 14th of 1976. Randall was believed to have been walking home from school with a friend when he was abducted by the creep. Our friend and author, David Nelson, whose book, Boys Enter the House, details that approximately two years after Randall went missing, his brother Clyde encountered a man whom he believed to be Gacy. Gacy had stopped to offer him a ride, which Clyde refused. Apex predator, man. On April 26th, Gacy was back in court at 26 in California as he was being indicted on the remaining 26 counts of murder, bringing the total to 33. Now, if you recall back on January 10th of 79, the creep pled not guilty to the first seven counts of murder. Gacy once again, which is par for the course, through his attorneys, pleads not guilty. On May 23rd, the 13th victim recovered from the creep's property was identified by Dr. Stein. That young man was William Kindred, AKA Billy. Now we've heard about some of Billy's ill-fated last few days on earth a few episodes back. Also on May 23rd, Gacy, under heavy guard, was taken from Cermak Memorial Hospital to the County Psychiatric Hospital for a series of neurological tests and a full scan. At this point in time, both the state and the defense have engaged the services of mental health experts to evaluate Gacy to determine what, if any, mental illnesses 
the creep may suffer from. Now, typically the state and the defense do not run their psychological examinations through the court, meaning that at some points they can cherry pick which reports will end up in the hands of opposing counsel. Garippa was not allowing for this to happen and ordered that every report, good, bad, or indifferent, which was prepared would be submitted to the court for review. Now, this was a bold move by Garippo, but a well thought out one in a case where the defendant's mental state is the key issue in the case. In this case, what Garippo said was, either side can make whatever requests they want of any particular uh, psychiatric witness, or psychologist witness, but uh, the only way the court will appoint them and approve them is if they consider themselves as court appointed and their report will be tendered to the court. Uh, and, and the court will make it available to both sides in every instance. Now, if you, one side doesn't want to put that, was going to put that person on and doesn't want to, if the other side wants to, they can do it. You can do whatever you want going forward, but that's how we're going to get to the point of uh, having the opinion lodged with the court. There are going to be courts, witnesses, period. Uh, in other words, you can't defense, you can't go out and hire somebody, and if you don't like their finding, bury the information. State, same thing for you. Uh, you know, which was fine. On August 28th of 1979, the parties were back in court to determine whether or not all 33 victims would be tried as a part of one trial, or, in the alternative, whether they would be tried separately. The defense team had filed a motion seeking a joint trial for all the charges, stating that Gacy was acting under the same mental condition from the outset of his alleged conduct, and that each offense was part of the same continuous transaction. Garippo ruled that the matter would be tried all at one time because logistically, the ends of justice would be best served by having one trial as opposed to 33 separate trials. Well, frankly, we were, at least in the very beginning, operating on the premise uh, that it would not be a consolidated trial. Uh, there's no provision uh, in Illinois law that requires it. Now, some states uh, actually make the assumption that the, a case like that could be tried together, but then, you know, the defense has... Uh, a way to raise the issue if they want to prevent it. In Illinois, frankly, it's quite the reverse. And indeed, when when that issue was placed before Judge Garippo, I actually uh, took the position at one point uh, that uh, the state probably didn't have a legal position because I don't think that we, uh, the law gave us a uh, standing uh, to request it uh, now. I was sort of laying low on it because if we could get that to happen, that would be terrific in my view. And I'll tell you why. My personal issue with the separate trials was this. Number one, at the time the uh, first set of indictments came down, I believe it was seven. Correct. 
seven that he kept talking about, including peace, even we did not yet have peace body. So we nevertheless felt that we had to have, if we were forced to try them one at a time, peace had to be the first one. And the reason for that is that was the case where we had the most evidence, even without the recovery of the body, uh, that it was a felony murder. Uh, that clearly there was, uh, he was uh, abducted and restrained. Uh, there, it was either a kidnapping or at the very least an unlawful restraint. Uh, there's no question that there was, uh, uh, you know, he was handcuffed, that he was uh, killed with a rope, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All these factors were gone over in the most detail by Gacy and his statements. Uh, there was no basis for any uh, support to any, uh, this was a drug-induced psychotic rage or whatever. You know, none of that would, would fit the circumstances of how this whole thing went down, even in his own statements. And so peace had to be the first trial, even without the body. But here was my worry. I didn't think we would have any problem getting the death penalty from a theoretical peace jury. However, now there's going to be a clamor from other families. There's going to be a necessity in terms of the prosecutor's viewpoint to try at the very least a second one under the, you know, simple theory, you want to back it up. Uh, number two, you want to make it, uh, if there were any issue about it in the first trial, you wanted to make it a non-issue that uh, an aggravated factor was going to be multiple homicides, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There were all kinds of reasons to fit the statute that there would be more than one trial. Uh, there might not well be 33, but there would certainly be more than one. And if you look at the language of the death penalty statute at that time, this is all prior to the change uh, to placing the burden on the defense uh, to do more than just raise some evidence with respect to sanity. Uh, and also without the, uh, the middle road verdict of guilty but mentally ill, none of that existed at that time. So my worry was, forget the aggravating factors in the guilt phase. In the penalty phase, there was a specific requirement under the law that the defense could present evidence of severe emotional distress, separate and apart from the basic Illinois definition of the insanity defense. Now, while I certainly felt that if not all juries, a majority of juries uh, would not have a problem with that, given the facts of this case or these cases, and ultimately we could get through it. But the more times you tried this case, I wasn't worried about getting yet another guilty finding, but I was very worried about some jury somewhere 
not being able to unanimously reject the mitigating factor of severe emotional distress. And to me, the opportunity to try them all at once was absolutely preferable. And so did, did that, oh, keep going. Well, and the defense wanted it. And one of the ways that, uh, you know, we tried to encourage the defense is we made it very clear to them that if they weren't all tried together, that we would be filing motions to limit uh, the ability of their factual evidence presentation as well as the opinion evidence of their experts uh, to a finite time period regarding the particular case. Uh, that if, if you know they weren't going to try the other cases, there was going to be a limit to uh, what they could put on with respect to other crimes, uh, particularly with respect to the guilt or innocence phase as opposed to the sentencing phase. And so there was a major benefit to the defense, uh, at least theoretically, uh, of having it all done at once, as, as I felt, although we never talked about it in public, uh, that there was an advantage to the prosecution in doing it all at once. Now, as it turns out, once we allowed that to happen and the defense opted to ask for it, uh, I got roasted in the press by a lot of uh, well-known uh, talking head former prosecutors, now defense lawyers, then defense lawyers, uh, in the media saying, you know, how could Kunkel do that? How could you only take one bite at the apple? This is ridiculous. He's really rolling the dice here, blah, 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 blah. I'm thinking, okay, but I'm obviously not going to respond because I'm not going to tip my hand as to why, but that's, uh, there was a certain amount of risk involved, but uh, there was no question in my mind that this was should not be tried more than once. Also on this date, the court heard a motion by the defense to dismiss 17 of the 33 charges because the bodies have not yet been identified. Garippo punted that motion out of court without blinking an eye. The final word of the court was setting a trial date for the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy. The creep's comeuppance is set in stone to start in earnest on January 7th, 1980. On September 12th, Dr. Stein reports that he has identified two more victims, 20-year-old Tommy Bowling, who disappeared on November 18th of 1977. Bowling left behind his wife, Jolie, and a three-year-old son, Timmy. Also identified was 16-year-old Robert Winch, who had disappeared on November 11th, 1977. We learned some about Robert Winch in a prior episode, and he had run away from a foster home in Kalamazoo, Michigan. On October 2nd of 1979, back in court, Garippa ordered that the defense had to turn over more than 200 pages of notes prepared by defense expert witness, psychiatrist Richard Rappaport, based on his interviews with Gacy in preparation for trial. Kunkel and the state had requested to be able to review the notes and the defense had objected, stating that the notes were confidential. Garippa ordered that the notes be turned over to the court immediately so that he could study them. Garippo told both sides that he is not studying the notes for the content, but instead he'll be reviewing them for form. 
to determine whether they are personal notes, which would not be turned over to the prosecution, or if in fact, there are detailed interviews, which would be turned over, per the existing transparency order regarding doctor's reports that Garippo had ordered months earlier. On October 25th, Amaranti and Mata are heard on their motion for the court to appoint them so that they can be paid their fees by Cook County as the creep has run out of money to pay for his attorneys. The state did not object to the defense team being paid out of the county funds. However, they did ask the court that if the defense attorneys make any money from a movie, a book, or a TV deal, that they should be ordered to reimburse the county all the fees paid to them. Amaranti states on the record that he's agreeable to those terms, but also notes that there are no book or movie deals in the works at the present time. Both Amaranti and Mata advise the court that both will be giving up their practices so that they can work on the case full time as trial is fast approaching. Now, in case you were wondering, as I've been often asked, how much, if any, did my father and Amaranti get paid to handle the Gacy case? Well, going in, Gacy had assets totaling about 135,000, which is the equivalent to about 540,000 by today's standards. This amount, of course, includes the house, which, as you know, was demolished. Out of everything Gacy owned, the total amount collected from all of his assets was roughly about 20 grand, which was split between Mata and Amaranti, hence the need for them to file the motion to be appointed by the court. I can tell you this, my father never made a dime off the case from a movie or a book deal. Amaranti co-authored a book back in 2015, and I have no idea whether he's made any money on the book. In light of the fact that he's refused to come onto the pod, I guess we'll never know. On November 14th of 1979, 14-year-old Samuel Stapleton is identified by Dr. Stein through the use of an x-ray of Samuel's head that included outlines of his teeth and a bracelet that was found on the remains, which was identified by Samuel's mother, Bessie. Samuel disappeared while he was walking home from his sister's house on May 13th of 1976. His parents reported him missing the following day. On November 16th, Stein identifies David Talsma on what would have been his 21st birthday. Stein used an x-ray of an old injury to David's left arm to identify him. It's unknown when and where exactly the creep got his grimy, murderous hands on David. Now this brings us to the precipice of trial, and there is only one issue left to resolve, and that is whether Gacy can in fact get a fair trial in Cook County, where all of his terrible deeds have been reported on a daily basis. The reality is that this was a case that was reported on nationally, so much so there may not exist a county in the entire country that Gacy could hope to impanel a jury that doesn't come into the case wanting to see him hanging from the gallows pole. Now I'm speaking metaphorically here as Illinois used a lethal injection in 1980 and all the way through to 1994 when Gacy was actually executed to put people to death. The defense team didn't go into court on January 7th just pontificating about how tainted the jury pool was. They in fact had hired a polling company to poll random residents of Cook County to see what their thoughts were in regard to the creep's guilt or innocence. And as you can imagine, the numbers came back somewhere in the neighborhood of 98% of Cook County's residents saying, fry that son of a bitch. So Garippo had no choice but to change the venue of the trial. 
but in a completely novel move in order to avoid the massive costs and inconvenience of transporting all of the evidence and the files to an unknown rural county in Illinois, he decided that they would select a jury from another county, which is yet to be determined. And that jury will be transported and sequestered in a hotel in Chicago for the duration of the trial. So there you have it. We've arrived at the eve of the trial of the century. We will find out where in the world they will pick a jury from, hear opening arguments, and dive into the state's case in chief on the next episode of Defense Diaries. I'd like to give some love to everyone that helps make this pod happen. You know him, you love him. My executive producer, D, you're the best in the game, brother. Taras and Gak, y'all are the best in the game. To Corey Ridings and Alex Carver, your art is the cat's meow. And finally, Ali Mata, you're the best. To our beautiful and beloved patrons, thank you, thank you for your continued support. It means everything to us. And finally, to all of you, our amazing listeners, who have taken this 31-episode journey with us, we love you. Without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know exactly where the body's at.